From the panic room at the Alamo, it's the IGN DigiGuys. Please welcome two men who won't talk about the time they reenacted the Russian roulette scene from the Deer Hunter, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. And so the rabbi says to the priest, see, that's why we use matzah bread, right? I love that See? joke. One of my See? favorites. Absolutely. One of my favorites. There you go. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Here we are with the DigiGods, uh, Wade's Big Week. Now, last week we talked about that gigantic uh, dark uh, yeah. night box set. Yeah. We don't have anything that enormous no, we're, this we're, week. We're doing the show a little bit early this week, and uh, between our doing the show early and uh, some of the other uh, companies dragging their feet on getting uh, timely releases to us, we don't have some of the bigger releases yet this week, but we do have a, a handful of things. I don't like the fact that uh, you did not bring up uh, last week the Criterion uh, December releases. Well, by all means, fill us in, Mark. Well, here's the thing, Wade. Are you a fan of uh, Nashville? Not particularly. Really? <laughs> I hate to admit that. I know that's kind of sacrilegious. But I, look, I'd always heard a lot of stuff about Nashville. Here, here's the thing. Here, let, me, let, me, let me just backtrack a little bit and kind of fill in my Altman, my Altman history. Well, hang here. on. Let me front track your backtrack by saying the reason why we're talking about this is because Criterion is releasing it yes. uh, in December. Yes, December they are. December 3rd. And, and, and they have some great stuff coming out in December. I mean, it's going to be a great, great thing. Here's why I'm not quite on, on board the Nashville thing. I did not necessarily grow up with Altman films like a lot of people did. I grew up on you know Kubrick and uh, Truffaut and all that stuff. That, that was my art house exposure early on. So Altman, you know, I was a little bit too young to really be into things like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and I was you know Mash was something I knew as a TV show, not a movie, right? So I kind of just when I was born, I kind of missed the Altman train a little bit. So I was late to it, and I came to it when he was already kind of out of favor, making stuff like Come Back to the Five and Jim. Dime Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, and Streamers, right? He was, when he was making that kind of stuff when I was in high school and I was you know, starting to work at the, at the theater. And uh, I was like, these weird little kind of micro-budget movies, and who's this Karen Black person? Right? That was the Altman that I was exposed to. And then, of course, he had this resurgence, and you know, then there was Popeye and player. You know, the, the Player and all that stuff. When I was in film school, I saw Nashville. And I was like, oh, this is the big deal. And we saw it, and I just thought, that is just a, a, a great big convoluted, mismatched, boring monstrosity of a movie about a lot of people that I have absolutely no interest in. And uh, you know, on top of that, I, I was a little bit partial to it because Henry Gibson is in the movie. And uh, Henry Gibson's son, Jimmy, had been a friend of mine uh, in high school, ever in junior high and going into high school. So I, you know, I, I was like, Henry Gibson's funnier on laughing. I want him to be funny. Right, so there you go. Wait, that's a great story because most people Thank think you. it's a masterpiece. And I you know. Don't. So basically, <laughs> I, know. I don't know what you just said, <laughs> except to say yeah. that Criterion is releasing on December third. Now, here's yeah. the thing, Wade. Now, uh, uh, we uh, last week, our listeners enjoyed part one of your interview with John mm-hmm. Badham, the director of Saturday Night Fever. Part two coming today. Part two. Yep. Coming today. Yes. The first Wade because. Um, I'm a music nerd. I'm going to talk about this Blu-ray because you you shoved it in my face and I said, wow, I got to watch this. And wow, it was awesome. The Making of The Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. Now, uh, for those who don't know, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon is uh, regularly named as one of the best albums ever made. In fact, this uh, album, let me tell you something, Wade. Yep. Now, here's the situation. You're saying to yourself, yeah, Dark Side of the Moon, whatever. You know, King came out in 1973. Who cares? How good could it be? Mm-hmm. Try to guess for me 
how many weeks Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon stayed in the Billboard uh, top album charts? Uh, how many weeks? 14. <laughs> Dark Side of the Moon stayed on Billboard's album charts consecutively, week after week, for 741 weeks. Wow, 741 weeks? 741 weeks. I don't even know how many years that is. What is that, that 16, is from, 16 years? 17 that is from 1973 years? to 1988. Holy crap. And it slipped off and then came back on. But the record is 741 weeks. Okay. So this thing is, this is a total, complete, and utter masterpiece, much like Nashville. And uh, this Blu-ray, The Making of the Dark Side of the Moon, it's, um, it's pretty definitive because it includes um, interviews... And performances with uh, David Gilmore, Nick Mason, Roger Waters, uh, and also uh, the other guy, Richard Wright. Those are the, um, that's Pink Floyd. And it's great. Dark Side of the Moon is a masterpiece. It was her eighth studio album, and uh, it includes money, which everyone knows about, you know, money. Uh, it's, just, it's just a great album. So you got to check out Pink Floyd making the Dark Side of the Moon. If you've never heard of the album or never heard of the album, I would maybe start by listening to the album first. Wow. And then, because uh, there was some drama there, because as everybody knows, David Gilmore and, uh, I mean, um, yeah, David Gilmore and Roger Waters famously did fell, not get fell along. Apart, fell out, they yeah. fell out, and they... Because Roger Waters is a genius, and David Gilmore just wants to, like, do his guitar solos. Exactly. So there's, <laughs> a, lot of, there's a lot of animosity there and uh, regarding who really was the brain, brainchild of uh, Pink Floyd. But anyway, uh, this is great stuff. It looks at it looks at a track by track, and it's just a masterpiece. Love it. It's totally ahead of its time and still holds up. Check out The Making of the Dark Side of the Moon. Swanky. A uh, bunch of classical music I'm going to go through real quickly because I know our fans are real big fans of opera. But, uh, yeah, so anyway, here we go. Uh, a lot of stuff coming out here from Naxos and the various labels that Naxos handles and uh, some really good stuff in here, some other stuff that's kind of a little bit more generic. Benjamin Britten's Death in Venice, awesome. I am, you know, I am, I'm, there are operas that I like. There are operas that kind of really tax my patience. Death in Venice is great. Benjamin Britten is fantastic. Um, this is uh, on uh, Blu-ray from Dynamic, uh, featuring the uh, Teatro La Fenice in Venice. Oh it my is God, never... the Teatro La Fenice in it's Venice! Really good. Wait. Uh, I know. Um, the you know if you're if you're a Wagner fan, uh, I got a couple of things for you. Tristan and Isolde from uh, Art House Music, the uh, Berlin Opera. This is on two DVDs, not on Blu-ray. Uh, it's a really good staging of it. I saw Tristan and Isolde all six hours of it. Here at the music center some years ago, Christy took me. Believe it, that that's love, right? Here, I want you. I'm going to take you downtown, and we're going to sit and. That's and not love. That's torture. We're going to watch six six hours of an opera, yeah. <laughs> and it was really awesome. It was. The art direction was what, amazing. Was there how many intermissions were there? Six hours. One. What? Yeah, one. It was one. One big intermission. Uh, and then also for fans of Wagner, there's a Blu-ray, uh, it's a documentary by Hans Christoph von Bach, which is about a Buenos Aires uh, event where they tried to stage the entire Wagner ring cycle on a single day. Really, really interesting. Um, they, they show the, just the evolution of how they stage it and they plan it and so forth and so on. It's really a freaking interesting documentary. Um, I you know, have to kind of be into opera a little bit and you have to know the ring to, to really get all the nuances of it, but it's really interesting. Uh, three on uh, Mozart's. The, uh, the, the there's uh, Requiem, which is the Lucerne Festival Orchestra. Then there's Don Giovanni uh, with the um, the uh, gosh, I don't even know how to pronounce this. Uh, Star Wars. 
you know what? Let's just say the new Don Giovanni on Blu-ray. The new Don Giovanni. Yeah. Uh, there's no way that I'm even going to pronounce the, uh, any of the people doing this. And then uh, Le Nozze de Figaro, uh, which is uh, from uh, conductor Robin Ticciati. Ticciati. Uh, all of these are really, really good. Uh, not anything groundbreaking, but they're, you know, they're, they're perfectly serviceable uh, renderings of Mozart operas. Uh, Puccini's La Fanicula del West. I know I'm murdering that from the uh, Royal Swedish Opera House. Uh, really interesting, actually. Um, very nicely done. I'm not familiar with it, generally speaking. Uh, Puccini, I'm kind of a hit and miss with the music. Rossini's Ciro in Babylonia. This is uh, really actually quite interesting in terms of the art direction and the costuming. And then finally... Uh, Ver- oh, finally. Yes, Verdi's uh, Ambalo in Mascara from the Leipzig Opera. Boy, this is taxing all of my Italian stuff. Which also has some amazing um, artwork and uh, art direction and costuming. Pretty cool. And then uh, lastly, from the New World, uh, this is uh, Andres Nelson's doing a bunch of stuff from uh, Charles Ives, John Adams, Igor Stravinsky, and uh, Antonin Dvorak. Uh, Bruckner's Symphony Number no. Nine by Wolf Leder, conducted by Wolf Leder uh, from Opus Arte. These are those are both on Blu-ray. A fantastic Blu-ray of the 60th anniversary concert uh, by the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra, directed by uh, conducted by Zubin Mehta. Uh, with Daniel Barenboim, and uh, really pretty awesome. Uh, there's some, some Bach and some Vivaldi, Mozart, Brahms, and no Wagner. Go figure. Yeah. 60th anniversary. Why <laughs> would the Jewish Philharmonic not want to play Wagner? Uh, no, this is great. Uh, Isaac Stern, Itzhak Perlman. I mean, just, you know, this is like just legendary, legendary performances here. This is really outstanding. And then lastly is um, Stravinsky's uh, Le Secret du Printemps. Which uh, he, oh, fa, fa, fa. and this all this also includes uh, L'Oiseau de Feu, the Firebird. Uh, some great choreography here uh, by n- the famous Nijinsky. You know who you've seen the movie Nijinsky, right? And of course, yeah. I mean, it, it, like saw it yeah. forty-eight years ago or yeah. seventy-five years ago or whatever that was. Anyway, great stuff, wonderful, and uh, that is it. That's a, a, a DVD. And it's, uh, it's really, really nicely put together, and I wish there were a Blu-ray of it, but unfortunately it's not, so you've got to live with the little uh, the DVD book. It's kind of done as a digipack deal. Anyway, all right, there's that. Mark, yes. could you please explain to me, I leave this fully in your hands, I don't understand... Nicholas Cage, the only person who has made worse career choices than Nicholas Cage over the past few years is John Cusack. What happens when the two of them make an absolutely horrible, horrible career choice to be in the same movie together? And the funny thing is, this is not a Millennium film. This thing has Millennium written all over it. <laughs> I know, doesn't it? Isn't that weird? And you look at that and you just think, oh my gosh, it's an Avi Lerner special. He, just, he, just, he, he got a script and he just said, uh, Nick Cage is desperate and John Cusack is desperate and they both come easy and I can uh, throw some money at them. They'll be in a movie and they won't even question it. Here, be in my movie. But it's not. He probably threw that script at uh, Pacino and De Niro instead. I don't understand this, but I, why would I mean? I, I understand. Let me let me take a step back. I understand the appeal of to John Cusack of wanting to be a bad guy, of wanting to be like the killer, to be the 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 mouse and the cat and mouse. That yeah, I get that. I get the whole thing, but it's not a very good movie. I'm I'm going to uh, say something controversial. Yes, I'm going to say that within five years, mm-hmm. Nicolas Cage will have a huge television Matthew, series. No, Matthew McConaughey esque career renaissance. Between three and five years. You really are a dreamer, aren't you? Did, did anybody ever think that Matthew McConaughey would 
have any sort of career renaissance? Absolutely. You did not. Of course I did. Just no. Of course I did. Because he was in... You, you, see, you see, I'm a big fan of 13 Conversations about one thing. Because the, the, the sisters who made it, the Spracker sisters, are friends of ours. And uh, nobody... Oh, else, so you like it because you know the filmmakers. No, but because, uh, because nobody else is aware of that movie. Because it really didn't get a whole lot of play. But because we are friends with the filmmakers, we've, saw that, we've seen that movie numerous times. And Matthew McConaughey is so unbelievably good in that movie. He is so phenomenally, spectacularly good. He and Alan Arkin carry that movie. And um, if you've seen that movie, you know how good he can be as an actor. Well, and he, I've, all, I've been waiting for him to just sort of say, you know what, I'm going to wash my hands of all these stupid rom-com things. I'm going to let, the, uh, I'm gonna let uh, Gerard Butler kind of take all that crap and run with it since he seems to be much more into it now, and I'm going to go do real movies. And I knew, that, I knew he had that coming because we heard stories from the set of 13 Conversations. And McConaughey is, is really the consummate actor. He's not that guy. He's not that, hey, hey I'm going to be the, 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 the player. Oh, man, I don't want to fall in love. He's not that guy. He really is. He's a family man, and he's very focused on his craft, and he, uh, he really is all about the, the acting. Well, and I guess. And why did he make all those bad choices in romantic comedy? I know. Well, he made his money. Let's put it that way. That's he fine. made his money. Well, uh, this uh, movie, which, by the way, is not as bad as we're making it out to see him. There's some good stuff in it. It's... Um, uh, Nicholas Cage uh, plays a uh, state trooper who wants to uh, track down a uh, killer in a very wintry setting. In fact, um, considering the cop and the killer and the wintry setting, I think you should go ahead and rewatch the terrific, completely overlooked insomnia with Al Pacino and Robin yeah, Williams I agree. over Frozen Ground. It, which is, it, it, it is similar, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it, it is it's similar. similar. Uh, there's, there are I some. thought about uh, that. There's some visual similarities. There's some narrative similarities there. Uh, so this is kind of like a poor man's insomnia. But you know what? A lot of it is pretty familiar. Uh, I'm not saying it's a great film, but actually it's kind of it's a little bit better than what we're giving it credit for. So I would go for it on a Saturday. On, you know what? I wouldn't go for it on a Saturday night. I'd go for it on a, on a, on a Thursday night. Thursday night, staying in, mm. want to see you know two actors who we generally enjoy be in a movie that's good, not great. Very nice. See? I bet they won't put that on the DVD box. No, of course they won't. I uh, got a trail from the Warner Archive collection here. Warner, Ar- of course, we again we only get a handful of the the titles that come out every month uh, and every even every week. I mean, Warner Archive is just pumping stuff up there every every uh, so often. So you should keep an eye as you go to WarnerArchive.com, see what's uh, what what's new over there because it doesn't always fall onto everybody's radar. Uh, these are uh, three terrific films. Uh, that are out once again uh, The first being David Copperfield The uh, amazing adaptation The quintessential adaptation of the Dickens Which has never been done right It's never been done that much frankly If you consider how many times they've done Great Expectations And Oliver Twist and all the other stuff David Copperfield almost never been done And uh, part of it is because the, uh, the original film Is just so perfect In casting W.C. Fields as Micawber. Um Nobody can do it Nobody else can do it. It's just it's he sort of owns the part and it belongs to him. And uh, it, it, there it is. the uh, The film, of course, was produced by David O. Selznick, who was the mega producer of the time. He had not yet done Gone with the Wind or Rebecca, but he was still a big deal, a big cheese. And it's a really good movie. Mar- uh, Marino Sullivan, uh, Louis Stone, uh, Freddie Bartholomew. Uh, you know, it's just an f- absolutely fantastic movie. Of course, directed by jo- uh, uh, George Cukor. And uh, a wonderful adaptation. I don't think it's the best adaptation of a Dickens novel. I think that still has to be Great Expectations, the David Lean film. But uh, this is a pretty great movie. Uh, also out once again, thank goodness, as part of their deal with Paramount, is uh, Targets. 
and uh, Boris Karloff in uh, the the very unusual movie Targets because Boris Karloff didn't actually act for Peter Bogdanovich in Targets. Do you know the story of this? Uh, please tell us. Here's the story of this, and and I know this because Targets was a film that we wanted to cover when Ray and I made Schlock. Targets was a kind of a, a, a central film that we really wanted to address because we, we, we had nailed down Bogdanovich to do an interview for us. You know, Ray flew to New York to interview Bogdanovich and the whole thing. I mean, we were like, oh, we got to get some footage from Targets. And we, we were able to get footage from all kinds of other movies. I mean, we got a lot of... People who've seen Schlock, they know, we really knocked it out of the park with the footage in that movie. Uh, Targets, however, being in the Paramount Library... Now, this is, this is the irony here. This is, this is why this gets into su- such irony. Um, we contacted Paramount and said, could we, we, we really want just a few seconds of Targets, just a few seconds. And um, after it was impossible to get hold of the people at Target at, at Paramount who even controlled all the rights. And when we got hold of them, they're like, um, I'm sorry, what, what, what movie? Targets. It's in your library. It's a Paramount movie. Peter Bogdanovich, uh, his first film, Peter Bogdanovich, was given a shot to make a movie. He was a critic, right? You know who he is, right? Peter Bogdanovich. He, made, he, he was a critic. And then Corman made, gave him a shot at directing. And there's a whole... Yeah, what movie? Targets. Go look it up. Do you have a library? Do you have a catalog? Geez, stop asking. It's Targets. T-A-R-G-E-T-S. They come back to us. Are you sure we have that? Yeah, it's your movie. Okay, fine. And eventually they're like, oh, yeah, it's ours. Okay. Yeah, we uh, $25,000. Uh, we'll give you 30 seconds and uh, the rights revert back to us in five years. It's like, are you kidding me? Are you seriously out of your mind? It's a little documentary. That's like, a, that's more than a quarter of our budget. What the hell's wrong with you people? Twenty-five. They revert, rights revert to you in five years, and then our, and then our movie is like useless. No, come on, work with us. They wouldn't work with us. So there's no footage of targets in our movie, and you couldn't fair because, use any of that. No, and because they were so, they, and it means so much to them now that they basically licensed it to Warner Brothers. That's Paramount. That's Paramount. Thank you. Lame studio. Anyway, here's the story of Targets. Um, Corman had a bunch of footage from another movie (laughs) that he needed to use. And he said to Bogdanovich, I'll let you direct a movie if you can uh, somehow take this footage from this other crappy movie that I spent money on, if you can incorporate it so it's not a total loss. Um, uh, you, You can have it. And so... He wound up making it the movie within the movie because it's all about a sniper at a, at a drive-in, right? It's like the first kind of spree shooter movie. It's the first movie to talk about spree shooters and that whole psychotic thing. So it was very much ahead of its time. And Karloff is in the movie that they'd shot previously that winds up being the movie that's being projected on the screen. And uh, if you've seen our, if you've seen Schlock, you know that Corman is elated in there at, at how Bogdanovich solved the problem. It was almost as if he invented a problem for Bogdanovich to solve just to be impressed by it. It's like, well, you did well, Grasshopper. Very nicely done. I'm very impressed at how you solved the problem. So. Very much like uh, like the uh, second Star Trek pilot. Exactly. Here's some footage. There you go. Normally never be used. Find a way to use Find it. Find a way to use uh, it. wound up with the menagerie. Brilliant. And then, uh, this seems an appropriate year to re-release King Vidor's Hallelujah. You know, this is turning out to be a watershed year for, uh, for black actors, black filmmakers, black screenwriters. Uh, I am not a fan of The Butler. However, I recognize that The Butler has become kind of a zeitgeist thing. 12 Years a Slave is starting to look like the, uh, the odds-on steamroller favorite to win the Oscar, assuming that Steve McQueen doesn't act like a jerk in any interviews between now and Oscar time, which is far from certain. But, uh, you know, and then on top of that, we've got the Mandela film with Idris Elba coming out. We're going to talk about another thing of his in a second. Um, this is like a, becoming a watershed year for, for, you know, black actors and filmmakers in, in Hollywood. And uh, Hallelujah, the King Vidor film, 
uh, from uh, 1929 is a bit of a big deal all on its own as well. Uh, this is uh, really the first film. It was the first all-black feature from a major studio. And it, uh, as, as such, it's really uh, it's remarkable. It's got all kinds... I mean, it's, it's musically, it holds a historic place as well. It's got, you know, some of the first recordings of uh, blues and jazz and all kinds of other uh, great music of the era in, you know, the first time any of these kinds of... Mu- this, this music appeared on screen. And uh, forget about the story. The story is really relatively uh, simple. It's, you know, it kind of... Uh, it's almost stereotypical in a lot of respects. But really, really... Uh, a fascinating landmark film. It is out from Warner Archive Collection uh, once again. It was out of print for quite a while, and it is definitely worth checking out. A bit of Hollywood history there. Speaking of Hollywood history, Wade, uh, finally on Blu-ray, a very nice Blu-ray, may I add, we have the Best Picture winner from uh, 1953 from Here to Eternity. This, uh, this particular Pearl Harbor film runs circles around the other Michael Bay Pearl Harbor film, in fact, my home movies from nineteen. I love, I love from here to eternity. I really do. I, just, I love it. Uh, this is great stuff. I have to say that the movie it was uh, directed by Fred Zinneman, who also uh, you know directed uh, High Noon, a bunch of other great movies. Um, I will say that the movie, although it's great, it, it tends to bog down a little bit once Sinatra like gets sent to the stockades and leaves the scene for a while. That was like my least favorite passage of the movie because it was yeah. no Sinatra. But otherwise, Montgomery Clift is amazing, and uh, of course, it does have that iconic. Uh, in fact, it's so iconic they even put it on the cover, which is uh, Burt Lancaster and Deborah Carr uh, kissing on the beach. So great stuff. There's an audio commentary here from Tim Zinneman, uh, Fred Zinneman's son, and Alvin Sargent. Now, Alvin Sargent uh, is has been around for many, 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 many years. He's the guy who writes the uh, the, the Spider-Man movies, right? He actually <laughs> somebody he, he was resurrected by Sony president uh, Amy Pascoe yeah. to write. The Spider-Man films, yeah. even though at the time he was like, he must have been in his 70s when he started writing the Spider-Man yeah. films. But the thing is that that's why those films are good. Of course it Old is. school screenwriter with old school sensibilities. Yeah. Yes, you can have the special effects and you can have the big whiz-bang fight scenes. But the human, people, the, but the people, human people. factor is because human. of old school guys like Alvin Sargent. Look, and, and, and uh, Peter Morgan is the only screenwriter today who has those chops, I think. And, and again, that's, that's one reason why a movie like, uh, like Rush is just so unbelievably freaking good. Because, or, or even The Damned United. You're not a soccer fan, but The Damned United's a good movie, right? Yeah. Who cares about the soccer in it? It's about the people. Same thing with Rush. I don't care if you don't like Formula One racing. I don't care if you know, the, you know an engine from a, from a hole in the ground. It's a great movie. It's a great story. That's the, they understand it's about the people, not about the costume, not about Spider-Man, not about you know Mary Jane or whatever the hell. No, it's about the people. <laughs> anyway, this is yep. great stuff. Uh, from Here to Eternity, it looks great, sounds great. The uh, I, I maybe thought maybe there'd be better extras, but you know what? The making of is pretty good. It and, works. Uh, the other commentary is terrific. So you know what? From here to eternity, a Oscar-winning best picture. Any Oscar-winning best picture is almost an automatic recommend. And we are now going to segue into some television. Of course, we have uh, part two of the uh, John Badham interview coming up later in the show. And uh, while we get into some TV. Uh, make mention season one of China Beach is out now as an individual. I talked about the you know we we uh, yes, with much fanfare Wade, talked you about love China I Beach. I love China Beach. Uh, we talked about the complete series when it finally made its debut. Now they are releasing individually the uh, the seasons. So if you uh, prefer to not get the big Mondo set and just kind of uh, snatch these individual seasons as they arrive, you can do so effective immediately. 
the first season, again, not the strongest season of the show. This is when everything's kind of falling into place, but it has some damn good episodes. Wait, 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 wait. Really damn you good just episodes. admitted that not every moment of China Beach is brilliant? No. But you do have some good featurettes on here. How it all began, highlights from the uh, cast reunion in 2012, and gosh, everyone looks really good in that. And, of course, interviews with Dana Delaney and Chloe Webb, and selected commentaries. This is a, you know, I just love this show. Best show ever in the history of television. And then, Mark, um, I gotta say, I am shockingly impressed with the series Arrow. People uh, this love this show. People love that show. I they am really sh- do. I am shocked that, that I, I, I was like, oh gosh, here we go. You know, this is the new thing, right? DC and Marvel, they, they've done their animated deals. Uh, they're making their big uh, feature film. Now we've got to try and take over live-action television. And we already saw how that worked with DC and their stupid Wonder Woman resurrected series. That thing lasted like 14 seconds. That was horrible. And I, I thought, Arrow. Okay, great. Of all, the, of all the DC superheroes you're going to put on television, seriously, Green Arrow, really? Are you kidding me? Like, like that's the one? He's going he's to be doing their little Robin Hood thing, running around in tights. I'm going to save you with my bow and arrow. I thought, this is going to be the dorkiest show I've ever seen. And i got to tell you, it's good. It's a good show. Uh, complete first season, Blu-ray, DVD, ultraviolet combo. Uh, and uh, it's, it's like, it's, you know, it's, it, they do the, to, to this a little bit what they did to, a little bit what Nolan did with Batman, which is they're finding the, the dark edges to the DC heroes, which is strange because everything, everything now DC is turning Marvel and Marvel is turning DC. Marvel were all these angst-ridden dark heroes and now they're all fun and frolicky and wisecracky. And uh, all the DC heroes who are always so fun and super friends and high kids. Well, that's a Warner Brothers thing. I mean, I, well, now everything's dark and broody and and well, that's their angsty. Well, no, I, I I wish I could call up this quote instantaneously, but I cannot. But who, some Warner Brothers guy, top guy, I forgot yeah. who it was. Maybe it was uh, what's his name. Um, he said that from now on, all of our superhero films will be broody because it was working for the Batman trilogy. Yeah. So. Because it was working for the Batman trilogy, that means suddenly every single superhero film they have has to have that same aesthetic, even though, of course, every character is different. Yeah. But no, 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 no. Because the Batman broody aesthetic made a lot of money, will make everybody broody. So everybody will make a lot of money. Well, well basically here, he, he's a billionaire. He's been on an island for years. And he comes back to Starling City, which is now like Gotham, all corrupted with... Uh, with you know crime and it's horrible and he uh, they've swapped out his little Robin Hood cap for a hood, which is a smart move because the Robin Hood cap with the little feather that that was never working that was not going to work. It was working in, in the comic. It works in the comic. It's it, it ain't going to work here. Uh, so and there's of course a very complicated kind of dark backstory and with his family and his father and all this stuff and it really it's it's you know what it's a it's a they've done a great job and uh, I, I think it's going to be it really interesting to see where it goes in the future. Uh, tons of special features here. Is feature, uh, tons of special features on the uh, the effects and the choreography, and uh, they really really good. They've done a done a great job. So uh, really interesting to see where that goes in the future. Uh, wait, South Park season sixteen. This thing never 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 ends. And uh, creatively, I don't see any reason why it would. Only because uh, the production schedule for this show is so tight. Eight days. Eight or, days. Yeah. That they can. That they get constantly creatively renourished yeah. by whatever's happening in the news. Yeah, you know. So here you've got uh, now. This is from uh, this is from last year, but you got uh, you know 
the, the boys at the Republican National Convention. Mm-hmm. You know, so it gets kind of political there. You've, you've, you've got a spoof of The Shining, which is terrific. I mean, um, it's, it's plus the fact that Matt and Trey do the voices, you know, that they get to just sort of goof off and just go, and they just do that shtick. And I, I didn't realize that they sounded like Beaker from uh, The Muppets. <laughs> but it's, it's easy. They're, it's not like you have to get the, these real actors together, like on The Simpsons and scripts. They, they can just sit down and they just do the shtick themselves. And it's, um, it's very easy when it begins, when that kind of an accelerated production schedule begins with the guys who created the show doing the voices themselves. Themselves, they could just go down in the basement and just go, oh, I got a great idea, let's record this. You know, it does have that kind of seat of your pants, guerrilla filmmaking quality to it. So, I mean, yes, South Park, in theory, could go on forever. Uh, a show I hope doesn't go on forever, in fact, a show I'm surprised uh, that's lasted as long as it has, is Beauty and the Beast on the CW. This is uh, the first season on DVD. Yeah, this is not to be confused with the Ron Perlman series. No. No. This is just terrible. It's got nothing to do with Beauty and the Beast. I don't really understand the, the, the why they even named it that. It's like it's almost just to be cute. And what's funny is that um, is that because this is a CW show, not only is the beauty beautiful, but the beast is even more beautiful. Because like it's when ridiculous. you're a CW show, when you're a CW show, the beast can't be an actual like malformed person. <laughs> no. It has to be like the world's hottest man with like one scar, <laughs> like a half an inch scar. And he's the beast. <laughs> It's just terrible. It's just forget the show. Oh, so what you're saying is it's like like uh, Bob Balaban and Jack Black will never actually be starring on a CW show. That's correct. Yes. Okay. Uh, nor will you or I. Louis Black? Maybe. No. Louis C.K. Okay. Maybe. Uh, two and a Half Men, the uh, complete tenth season. You love this show. You know what? I'm not anymore though. I mean, I, the, the earlier seasons were were fun. This is when the kid was sh- was like really short. Uh, and and small and lame and stupid and uh, you know that was fine. But now Angus Jones is grown up and Charlie's not on the show anymore. And it's like oh gosh, it's like, at some point they're going to do one of those two episodes that all shows do when they run out of steam. They're either going to have like an evil doppelganger or they're going to do a variation on the most dangerous game where like Rory Calhoun shows up and 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 pretends that Gilligan, I mean uh, Angus Nelson, is is his prey. Yeah, that, that's where everything goes haywire. Anyway, no, uh, Ashton Kutcher's on the show now, and, uh, you know, it's still on, but it's just, I don't know, it, it just, it's missing a little something. They re- it really feels like they, they're just trying to keep it going just because Warner Brothers wants to keep it going, and I don't know. It just doesn't, doesn't, have, the same, doesn't have the same panache. Uh, speaking of panache, Two Broke Girls is on uh, CBS, one of the top... Um Top uh, sitcoms on television. I don't really know why. I mean, I, I, you know, Michael Patrick King is a, you know, pretty talented guy. I would definitely would not put him in the, um, in the Chuck Lorre, you know, thing. Like, you know, Chuck Lorre to me mm-hmm. is such a hack. I mean, when when you watch like uh, Big Bang Theory, yeah, I think it's just terrible. Yeah. So sure. you know, I mean, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Patrick King is better than that. I mean, this guy. He's written for, you know, Will and Grace and Sybil and Sex and the City. So, you know, he's, he's, he's got some chops. So this show, which gladly gave um, K. 
Kat Dennings' work because I don't know where Kat Dennings was going to really wind up in film. But she, I, I, I like her though. She's yeah. got that really cool indie vibe to I know. her. But, but yeah, but I agree with you. Like it's when like, she was in Thor, you could, you could tell like in Thor, yeah, you could only really cast her as the as the funky best friend of the female lead, right? Because you're not going to cast her as the female lead, right? That's the only place for her is as the like when when we need some funk in our dramatic movie or we need some funk in our action film, let's yeah. get a Kat Dennings. Uh, yeah, you know. All right. So there's that, and then also we have the third season of Hawaii Five O. I'm surprised the show has lasted. I really did not peg the show. For I didn't either. Any more than six episodes. I didn't either. So I, 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 I thought that. Go. Yeah, I thought that was real desperation. It shows you how far the uh, the Hawaiian. Backdrop will travel. How much mileage that'll get you? It's true. I, I actually, as a side story, uh, I used to date this girl who was five five foot one. Yeah, and I, I used to call her Hawaii five one. <laughs> oh, I don't know why I'm laughing at that. It's, it's funny. It is funny. But yeah. here's the thing, though. See, did she, she think it was funny? Yes. Oh, she yeah, did. Okay, okay. Here's the situation. So this one girl that I was dating for three months. Okay. She was five foot one. Yeah. And I used to call her Hawaii five one, and she thought it was funny because mm-hmm. it was funny. Okay. And then last night. Went out with this other girl. She's also sh- just happens to be short. I think she's five one or something. And just for the hell of it, I called her Hawaii five one also. Very offended. Okay. She didn't like it. So the girl who thought it was funny is really the girl I should I should have kept going out with. But the new girl who was offended by Hawaii five one, maybe not as much. I'm just saying that. Okay. Put it out That's there. Fine. A little, That's it's a good. little insight into uh, what passes for my dating life. Okay. Anyway, this show has lasted, and I guess God love it, because, you know, uh, Scott Kahn gets work, and we love Scott Kahn, because his dad's funky cool. Grimm, obviously one of the uh, genre series that uh, is taking over television now, trying to find a, a new path in the, in the wake of uh, vampires being a little bit old hat. And, of course, and with Grimm, we have things like, you know, Once Upon a Time, everybody's, everybody, everything's fairy tale, or is peripherally related to fairy tales. And this is season two of Grimm, which is ongoing, and uh, I, you know... It's just it's it still feels like uh, the you know like the the, the uh, night what was the, the, the night stalker. It still feels night stalkery. Kolchak, the night still feels Kolchaky to me. It still feels like yeah, we can throw some more money at it and broaden it and make it you know give it a little bit more of a mythical backdrop, but it still feels like a variation on that. And uh, yeah, monsters, blah blah blah. And there's a whole you know mythical bloodline thing that they they throw into this and. It's, it, it, but it's a little bit like Night Stalker, while, it, while at the same time trying to be a little Dark Shadows. I don't know. It, it, it's, I, you know, if you're a genre fan, you'll like it. It's got really high production value. This is a Blu-ray digital copy, uh, ultraviolet set, uh, courtesy of uh, NBC Universal. But and it's, you know, it is gorgeous to look at, but just not my cup of tea. And next we have Homeland. Now, Homeland uh, won the Outstanding Drama Series Emmy in 2002. This, of course, is Homeland uh, Season 2. Here's the thing. Season 1, it was a surprise. Where'd this come from? Riveting. There's some amazing scenes in the first season. Took everyone by surprise. Now, of course, you got Season 2. The element of surprise is gone. We know the characters now. What's it going to do? Will it build upon the success of season one, or will it sort of drop a little bit? I still think this is a pretty uh, intense, exciting show, but obviously it's not as good as the first season, which mm. took us all by surprise, and we all, well, wow, where'd this come from? It's so great. Uh, the good news is, is that it, give, it gives Claire Danes work, and I love Claire Danes. I adore Claire Danes. She's awesome, and so uh, thank she's, God for her. She's, she was pregnant through shooting much of that first season. In fact, in, in fact, on the show, uh, they, they worked it in. She gives birth to a terrorist. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> 
What? A terrorist with the with a forked tongue and a tail. Oh no, oh. that's V. That's Vol oh. that's Volmland. Whatever. Did you say something? D no. I did not. Never, I, I'll never say anything ever again. This will be the silent podcast. <laughs> Thank God. Uh, anyway, Homeland uh, Season 2. Not as good as Season 1, but still good. On DVD is the final season of Leverage, which, uh, frankly, I think we are all astonished that that show lasted as long as it did. Uh, Timothy Hutton, great actor. Big fan of Timothy Hutton. Uh, even, though, even the crap that he's always done, he's always one of those really interesting actors. I'm hoping maybe he does features again. I would love to see Timothy Hutton uh, show up in a movie and bring it, you know, one more time the way that he did in Ordinary People and a whole bunch of movies in, in the, the back in the '80s. Uh, but that being said, leverage. Uh, you know what? It, let's put it this way: it, when you're an insurance guy and you become uh, a thief, that's really kind of a weird premise for a show. And then you put this team together, and uh, it, it kind of it, it 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 you know the the whole. The whole kind of like mismatched, weird, eccentric A-team uh, from, from bizarre, different walks of life, it just never really quite clicked for me. But um, you get next to nothing by way of special features, audio commentaries on the episodes, deleted scenes, and the gag reel. That is it. Uh, Wait, another show that I'm surprised lasted this long is The Mentalist. Mm -hmm. I kind of like this cover art. It's kind of 70s, uh, the salt he, bass. He likes organic Greek yogurt. Uh, Simon Baker? Yes. And you know that because? Because I was shopping at Whole Foods right next to him one time. God. And were people coming up to him? or Nobody was coming up to him. He was just there with his little basket, and he was just grabbing the organic Greek yogurt. And you know I why? Thought... Because this show has lasted five seasons, and no one's ever seen it. <laughs> I mean, how does that happen? I don't know. You know, it's funny. When I first saw the show, I thought, ah, this is so much like that stupid show Psych on USA, but it's kind of yeah. different than Psych. Psych is mm -hmm. like, I mean, uh, uh, Psych is uh, a little bit uh, comedic. Yep, and the mentalist is a little more clever in that uh, here's a guy Simon Baker. He can, you know, he can remember minute details of everything, but here the writing is more clever because they use that to snare people into traps mm -hmm. and to read their emotional states and that kind of stuff. So I, I almost think that um, the mentalist character here is almost more like Sherlock Holmes than he is like the guy from Psych. But but of course that's a that way overstates it because Sherlock Holmes is amazing and the mentalist is like eh. But uh, this thing has lasted five seasons, and of course it's on DVD, not Blu-ray, but uh, right. it continues on CBS. Uh, it's not a bad show. 22 uh, episodes from season five. There's a couple special features that are uh, nothing to write home about. So go for it if you like the show. Mentalist. Fifth season. Five years. Man, that's just such a quintessential CBS show, isn't it? I saw um, Gene Simmons at the Gelson's in Century City. Yeah. About six months ago. Yeah. And he was with his uh, wife, whatever her name is. Um, Mrs. Shannon, Simmons? Shannon Tweed. Yeah. Shecky, Shecky Tweed, <laughs> Shannon Tweed, and I have to tell you, Gene Simmons. When you see this guy again, he was he was in the Gelsons in Century City. He was wearing the full on uh, Gene Simmons getup with the black. Yeah, how, do, how do you get Gene Simmons and I get Simon? Uh, what's his Baker, uh, Simon Baker? Yeah, I'd say Gene Simmons. He was not. He was. He's he, he's hiding it, but he's old. Of course, he's he old. Really shuffling around. Of course, he's I old. Mean, shuffling around like he was either a combination of age and just decades worth of whatever the hell he took <laughs> and drank. You know what I mean? It's just weight on him. And it was like, gosh, look at Gene Simmons. Because you know, the thing is that he he can still strike a pose. He still wears the sunglasses. Uh, uh, look, Ozzy Osbourne, same thing. I, it, it was it must have been fifteen years ago that I saw Ozzy at a drugstore, and I thought, would you like a walker? At least a cane? Could I? I mean, could you? Could you maybe even pick a foot up? 
Like, you have to drag your souls? I mean, it was really sad. Joan Rivers, too. Like, Joan Rivers, you know, she sits down and is energetic in her voice and, yeah. her, and her arms and whatever, but when you see her walk around, she's Damn. an older woman, and that's fine, but I'm saying just very much a surprise. Yeah. Anyway, why are we talking about Gene Simmons? Because uh, the final season of Gene Simmons' Family Jewels is now oh, out on DVD, yes. 14 episodes, three discs, um, 15 minutes of special features, uh, which are completely useless. And this DVD set has my pet peeve, which is that it lists the episode titles <laughs> on the disc. No. Oh my God, this is the one where Lost, this is the season with Lost Phone, Wade. Oh, well, there you go. Wow. I'm so glad. I know that. Old Habits Die Hard. I wonder what that could be. I'm going to buy this and find out. <gasps> this, is the epi- this is the season with Baby on board. Yeah. Thank God they printed the episode titles on the back of the DVD box. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this show obviously was trying to be like the Osbournes, and it never was. Even the Osbournes at this point is not like the Osbournes. Reality television has moved beyond the Osbournes. Yeah. Uh, the fact that the Kardashians remain popular is almost as strange as a lightning in a bottle blip. You know, you really couldn't even do them again. Yep. So I'm not a big fan of uh, Family Jewels. It ended at the right time, if not a couple seasons uh, too late. So there you go. I pass. All right. Well, I'm going to go through some uh, really quickly from the, the, the amazingly super cool label Megahertz Networks, uh, mhznetworks.org. Uh, they continue to grab these really unbelievably cool, they're specializing, right? It's this really super cool detective stuff from overseas, Italian, Swedish, Danish, German, blah, 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 French, whatever. Uh, they, they just keep grabbing all of these really, really cool uh, overseas detective shows. First one uh, i got to make mention of is uh, Alain Delon in Frank Riva. Uh, which is a super cool series, French uh, detective series with Alain Delon, who, of course, was a big mega star back in the uh, 60s and 70s. And um, it's just so cool seeing him uh, play this, uh, this, this really cool detective who uh, used to be an undercover cop. And after 25 years, he comes uh, back in. You know, he, they drag him back in uh, because he has to look into um, the murder of his brother. You know, and uh, he he brings all of those crusty old uh, skills to the fore, and it's really really well written. And it's really cool to watch. Um, other uh, from Italian television are the Inspector Vivaldi mysteries, which uh, is actually surprisingly funny in many respects. He's a crusty old dude, and his family is just really not what he would like for it to be. Uh, his wife, you know, his wife's left him. His son is gay. Uh, everything at work sucks. Everything in his life sucks. And um, so all, really all he's got is just his ability to uh, pretty much solve any crime turned his way. And far more interesting is the uh, Don Mateo series. Uh, they sent me 56 episodes. And uh, I have not gotten through all of them, I must confess. but Because uh, it's been some busy weeks with the, uh, with, the, with the radio. But Don Mateo is a really cool show. And the reason it's cool is because it is about a priest who serves crime, who solves crimes. And I know like we've Father also, Dowling. See, I, I knew you were going to go to Father Dowling. And uh, there's, you know, Father Dowling is lame. It, because that's it got, is lame. It's lame. It's, uh, you know, it, it just it doesn't work. It, it's, it's, it's too cute by, by tenfold. It's, it's got, you know, uh, Richie Cunningham's dad stars in it. And uh, it's just, it just, just doesn't work. And then you also had the very, very good British series uh, with Derek Jacobi. Um, Father Dowling Mysteries. No. 
<laughs> no. uh, with Derek Jacobi is the medieval monk who solves all the crimes. Cadfail, right? You know, you've had Cadfail. Father Cadfail. Valley Mysteries. No, Cadfail is a really good show. But anyway, this this is much closer to Cadfail. But it's just it's it's contemporary and it's really really cool. It's uh, it's just really well written. The episodes are not repetitive. It doesn't have that uh, that Law and Order CSI problem where once you get acclimated to the beats of the show, you're like, okay, this is the uh, this is it. He's the guy with the thing with the hot. The, but, yeah, but, but you it, love that in. Um in uh, Law and Order, you, but, you, you, it's Law and Order is so formulaic. It, it, you it, love Law and Order. It is, but what's interesting is that the, the Don Mateo they actually develop the character over the course of the show. That's that's the nice thing is that you it's it's not sort of like every episode starts and you know we're back to square one and we have the same beats. You know, it's a little bit more like Magnum PI in the sense that if you watch it over the long haul, you start to see that they develop certain aspects of his character and he changes and relative to earlier episodes, it's very it's nicely put together. It's good stuff. Um, Wait, in seconds, Wade. Yes. We're going to have part two of our interview with John Battle. Part two in seconds. Uh, you know, there's some, some uh, British TV things that Mark absolutely hates uh, that do merit mention. Let me pull... You do that while I download the BuzzFeed app for my iPhone. You do that. And I just downloaded uh, OS 7. Idris Elba looks like he's quite likely to be an Oscar nominee. Now, mind you, this is going to be the most competitive Oscar year Probably in decades, in at least 20 years, maybe even 30 or 40 years. It's which, unbelievable. There, which is bizarre, because all we do is complain about how bad movies are. But you know what? It's look. I mean, honestly, I went, I went through and I made a list of all of the uh, potential Best Actor and Actress nominees. Y- y- you've got at least a dozen actors, at least a dozen, who could wind up being nominated for an Oscar. I mean, I mean it, like front-runner status. Like, not only be nominated, but could win. There are 12 guys who could conceivably be in the running to win. I would say only two of them are sure nominees. The rest, I wouldn't even, I, I, I wouldn't want to even speculate. So one of them is Idris Elba for playing um, Mandela. And uh, if you want to get a look at some of Idris Elba's earlier work, definitely check out Luther 3, now out from uh, BBC. Uh, you know, a lot of people saw him in The Wire. A lot of people saw him in Pacific... Well, a few people saw him in Pacific Rim. More people in Korea and Japan. But, I saw him in Pacific Rim. I but, like Pacific Rim. Well, good for you. Um, <laughs> you very proud. But, in, uh, but he got uh, a Golden Globe uh, last year uh, as best actor is playing John Luther. And uh, this is the third miniseries, Luther 3. That's why it's called Luther 3. Third miniseries uh, where he just really... He just nails it, you know? And yeah, sure, it's like an obvious thing. It, he, he's, he's a cop. He's a tough guy. He's you know, he's uh, he, he plays to his obvious physical attributes. But he's a really good actor, and it's a really really good show. And then the Hollow Crown, the complete series, is so freaking interesting. I can't believe it. Um, did you did you follow this? The the Hollow Crown. It's a really interesting thing that they did. They they wanted to do the complete. Uh, kind of a Richard through Henry trajectory of William Shakespeare. So Richard II, Henry IV Part I, Henry IV Part II, and Henry V, all together with Ben Wishaw, Jeremy Irons, and Tom Hiddleston um, anchoring the parts. Ooh, good right? trio. Oh, man. It is just, it nails it. And what a great supporting cast you get here. I mean, you get people who normally would have been starring in, you know, their own, uh, their own things, like Patrick Stewart, who I saw on stage as, as Macbeth. Um, John Hurt, who I also saw on the British stage, not in a Shakespearean thing. Julie Walters, uh, David Suchet, uh, or Suchet, David Morrissey, Geraldine Chaplin. I mean, this is an amazing cast. Unbelievable the people who show up in this thing. Richard Griffiths, who I also saw on stage. 
so this is really a wonderful thing. They did a, they did a great job putting this together and creating kind of an epic miniseries out of some Shakespearean plays. Uh, first rate, The Hollow Crown. Well done. Well done. Well done. Well done. And uh, let's see. Um, really, really, really super quickly, uh, we've got Smiley's People with uh, Alec Guinness, the John Le Carre. This is uh, with new bonus features on the first ever Blu-ray release. And this includes a 20-minute interview with John Le Carre. Uh, the, I don't know that the Smiley's People will ever make it necessarily to film. I know they're trying to do all the Le Carre uh, Smiley stuff again. Right as feature films, uh, it's going to be awfully hard to do some of them because they're so elaborate. But I don't know, maybe they'll strip it down the way that they did with the. Uh... Well, this is the uh, Smiley's People is sort of the sequely thing to uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Yes, exactly. Which exactly. is a film I absolutely loved. Which is is a good film, but I don't I don't know that Smiley's People will nest. I I mean, do you know? Are they planning on trying to do another one? Or well, the thing is, the... you know. It, it, I mean, I think they can if they if they get if they get the right people back in those in those same parts. Smiley's people is is I don't it's know. Pretty, maybe they can. Maybe they can. Maybe the thing, it's you, an easier you, adaptation. You, you can't say they can't do it because it's too convoluted. Because God knows Tinker Tailor is convoluted in itself. Yeah, that's true. And uh, let's see some Doctor Who. We have uh, some old Doctor Who, the Patrick Troughton years, Trufton, however you pronounce it, nineteen sixty-six to sixty-nine. This is the Ice Warriors. He's one of those crusty old Doctor Who's who did it all in black and white. And then um, you've got uh, Doctor Who: Scream of the Shalka, starring Richard E. Grant. Um, this is animated, people. This is animated. I didn't even know this existed. Did you know that this existed? I did not. An animated Doctor Who with Richard E. Grant, Scream of the Shalka. It's utterly strange. I was totally unfamiliar with that. So that's a, I don't know that I like it all that much, but it's an, it's an interesting um, novelty. And then the recent Doctor Who, the complete seventh series, uh, is out on Blu-ray with Matt Smith uh, basically knocking it out for one last time before it goes back to an old guy, the old Scottish dude whose name is escaping me right now. Um, and, you know, the, the newer Doctor Who is obviously higher in quality and, and production value, and that is a gorgeous Blu-ray. And then, uh, Mark, the, the last two things I'm going to make mention of before we get into the uh, John Badham interview and wrap it out. Top Gear, a special Top Gear blue, uh, DVD, the worst car in the history of the world. Did you see this? Awesome. It is hysterical. Awesome. It is absolutely... I mean, there's more, more on this than, than just that, but it's... Uh, I got to tell you, they, they talk about a lot of bad cars, but the worst car in the history of the world, oh my gosh, you will laugh yourself absolutely delirious. This is some of the best comedy I have ever seen. It is hysterical. Those, it top, is, guy, those top gear guys are great. They're wonderful. It is, it is a hoot. It is a riot. And then uh, on Blu-ray, just in time to get everybody all wrapped up for the fourth season, they have taken the uh, first three seasons of Downton Abbey and packaged them in a lovely limited edition boxed set, seasons one, two, and three. Um, uh, basically, uh, essentially, you know, just putting it all together, everything that's been released previously. But the one nice thing here is that they also throw in the uh, the Blu-ray of Secrets of Highclere Castle, which is all about the actual location. It's a documentary, you know, part of their part of an ongoing PBS thing about all these various, uh, uh, you know, manors and castles and so forth. But this particular one, relative to the show, because it's where the show is shot and uh, everything is centered around there, so it has its own history, obviously. So that's nice. So they throw that in there with the first three seasons, and you're all set to go, ready for the fourth season, as I am. I am ready for more Downton. I've never seen the show. You are missing out, bro. 
you were missing out. The 1920s are here. Jazz is here. They oh, really? They're introducing their first black character. What? Yeah, yeah. Well, which, I which, can't watch it now. Which 1920s England? I, I mean, you're, you're thinking, well, I mean, you're either gonna, I mean, how do you introduce a black guy in a 1920s England? He's either gonna be a jazz singer or like, you know, some kind of a colonial prince. So, I mean, truly, that's really the only options you have. But I think it's really cool that they're doing that. It's very much capturing the era. I think it's awesome. I could not agree more. Yes. So with that, here is part two of John Badham. I, I, I want to I move ahead to um, one of your strategies. The second part of the book talks about strategies. And I was particularly fascinated by um, how you approached action because I, I got the sense of that, uh, that most of the action films that I see today really don't in any way adhere to the things that you were talking about. Could you talk about um, how action has changed and uh, what you see as perhaps the right or maybe the wrong direction um, and what, what action movies should perhaps do or maybe should not do to sort of get back to, uh, back to what they used to be. I mean, in, you know, at the time, I, I happen to be a big fan of, uh, of The Hard Way. Uh, I was, you know, a young critic at the time, and uh, I, I found that to be an amazing blend of, of comedy and action, sort of the way that a lot of other films were doing at the time, Beverly Hills Cop and, and a lot of others that they don't do anymore. We don't really get those action comedies anymore. Um, everything is sort of all action all the time. Talk a little bit about your philosophies on action and, and where you see things right now. Well, what, I, what I'm seeing now is, uh, is action for action's sake that's, that's not necessarily telling the story very much. It's... Uh, it's like getting on one of the one of the great rides at uh, Disneyland or Magic Mountain or one of those places that just shake you all over and scare you and shake you and shake you and uh, drop you off a cliff and then and then suddenly say okay it's over and you walk away and you're kind of staggering and you you go oh well that was exciting but I don't know what it was now for me an action sequence should do all of that but it should tell you a story in the process uh, it it should be really clearly in the service of some kind of goal that the characters have they're trying to escape from this guy they're trying to kill the transformer whatever whatever the thing is uh we we should see uh the story progress not just a fight for a fight's sake, and, and that's what we see a lot of in the, uh, in, in the movies today. Um, secondly, in, in the effort to create energy, uh, we are editing the film so fast and cutting so fast that our brains really can't keep up with it. We're just sort of like swept up in, in, in the surf. You know, if a, a surfboarder gets uh, knocked over as he's coming in on a big wave, it just tumbles him around and up and down, and the, and the surfboard may hit him on the head and tumbles him around, and and you don't have any specific kind of feelings other than, oh, my God, that was scary. Uh, and and that's what a lot of these action sequences are like. You You don't know who is who or who's doing what to whom. It's just going so fast and uh, that that our brains can't keep up with it. I'm sure the filmmakers, when they were looking at the film in the edit bay, they said, oh, I know exactly what's going on. Well, sure, they've looked at it 48 times. Of course they know. 
But those of us who just uh, wander into the movie theater uh, would be damned if we can tell the story afterwards except to say, well, the the robots were after the dinosaurs. And, that I, I, yeah, they fought a lot. <laughs> and have we learned have we learned anything uh, did the story progress well um, I, I don't know so so i think i think that's a kind of loss of storytelling talent is what it gets down to just by thinking you can make a lot of noise and beat a lot of people over the head and that passes for excitement and you you really underline the idea that we should know we should not be disoriented by an action scene which is pretty much what you were just saying is when like when someone gets hit in the head with a surfboard and you're really you're completely disoriented in the action scenes now and you're supposed to just sort of assume that this is supposed to excite me and I I rewatched Blue Thunder not too long ago and was particularly impressed by the fact that yes I know where I am every second of this movie I'm aware of my environment aware of my geography and obviously the movie itself the story requires that because it's so much about who's watching whom who is where relative to whom there's a certain voyeuristic and uh, element to it but in in all your films in general as well action and otherwise you're never disoriented and uh, I, I think that's really one of the great um, Kind of one of the one of the sad things that's happened to movies is this idea that the that the more we cut, the better. The more disoriented, the better. That somehow that gets the adrenaline flowing. Um, so I, I I completely concur. I think that's a, a wonderful observation. I hope more people take it to heart. Talk for a second about the three take rule. Um, we hear about so many directors who, like Stanley Kubrick or William Wyler, who are renowned for uh, you know twenty, thirty, forty takes. You know the perfectionist who does all these takes until they finally get it right. And uh, you you don't you don't buy into that. Talk about that for a second. Uh, well, I I think that first of all uh, we don't we don't uh, rehearse things enough before we start doing takes and uh and it's extremely common for people to start shooting uh their their so-called rehearsal oh we might get something good let's shoot the rehearsal uh never in the history of film has anybody printed the rehearsal uh and if they tell us they did they're lying uh because it never works uh and and all you've done is gotten everybody nervous and wasted either film or ones and zeros if you're using digital media and uh and and unnecessarily gotten the actors all cranked up where they you might have captured something good and and it didn't happen so um that's that's one thing you know rehearse it until you until you pretty much get it right and then and then start to do takes and after a few takes uh you will have gotten the best out of the actors uh now when i worked with Laurence olivier uh he was somebody who who got good about take 6 or 7 and and up to that point he was just kind of finding his way a little bit so you have to make allowance for that uh on the on the other hand, work with John Travolta, and he's somebody who is good from take one on, uh, or Shia LaBeouf, who's who's uh, who's good from take one on, and uh, so the three take rule shouldn't apply to uh, you know just as a as a blanket rule, but trying to keep it to uh, 
a minimum and not doing any more because if you're one of those 40, 50 take uh, guys, then you're you're just wearing your actors out. And can you imagine if you know that your director does like to do lots and lots of takes and he says, okay, let's do the first one. You just go, oh, oh my gosh, it's like I'm setting out on a 10-mile hike with no water. Uh, I've got to make it all the way up to take 37 before he's going to say okay. Well, that's just dispiriting. I mean, one thing, you know, Clint Eastwood is famous for printing take one, and <laughs> uh, and that gets everybody's attention because, yeah. my God, he's he's going to walk away from that set, and, and you just kind of are getting warmed up. Well, his actors, <laughs> they instantly learn not to mess around. Uh, they get themselves ready. Interesting. Um, and uh you know the famous story with uh, uh with Kevin Costner and Clint that uh was <laughs> was really funny was was in the i think the film was called a perfect world and and Kevin was playing yeah. a um an escape convict and they're doing a scene where he's got to get out of his prisoner's clothes so he runs through the farmyard uh, in the in the backyard and grabs some dungarees off the uh, laundry line, and the next time we see him, he's got these dungarees on. So Clint has Kevin run through, grabs the dungarees, goes off. Clint says, cut, we're print, we're going on to the next location. And and Kevin, who is like this, says, well, you know, I'd, I'd like to do it again. I could do it better. says, no, it was fine. Yeah, but I could really do it better. You know, no, 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 it was fine. Well, you know, if I tried it, it, Clint says, Kevin, it's just laundry. And he, and he moved on, went to the next location, and Kevin got so mad that he refused to come out for the next take uh, on the next scene. And, and Clint just got his photo double and shot it anyway without him. Uh, so... Hmm. So Kevin came out of his trailer just fit to be tied, and 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 Clint looked at him with that kind of dirty, hairy look and said, "You know, kid, I might be the only guy in the world that can do this to you." And and there it was. Hmm. Well, uh, boy, I, I'm 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 running out of time here to to hit a lot of the stuff that I want to talk to you about. I mean, I could go on forever like this. This is. Uh, I, I wish we had three or four hours. I'm sure you don't. But um, l- let me jump to the, the latter part of the book. You go from the, the pitfalls to the strategies and then to the director's checklist. It's a, it's a brilliantly methodical structure. What, what I find particularly fascinating is when we get to the checklist, you decide to use examples from Kramer versus Kramer, Juno, No Country for Old Men, and the remake of True Grit. I can't think of a more uh, a, a motley bunch of movies that have almost nothing in common, but yet it's a, it, it's the superb part of the book. What made you pick such a, a, an unlikely bunch of uh, dissimilar movies? Well, uh, first of all, I really like all of those movies. They, uh, you know, they spoke to me in some way or another. I, I obviously have a uh penchant for uh the Cohen brothers movies uh there's two of them on on that list and um and yet to show 
even when you when you pick up a a motley bunch of movies, which is a good way to describe it, there if there's good storytelling there, you can you can see how these these kind of uh, uh, either rules or examples or things to look for exist in all kinds of scripts, uh, in, including uh, Richard the Third from Shakespeare. Um, that that it's there to be found, and when you're looking to figure out how do I best approach this script, or I don't know how to do it, I'm in the middle of it, and I'm having a problem. If I ask some of these questions in any random order, I, I'm going to find answers. And and uh, any anything decent that you're doing, uh, any any kind of decent script that you're doing is going to have these answers. You just have to dig a little bit. And and a lot of our creative problems can be solved by asking the right questions. Yeah, that's that's just so simple yet so superb. I, you know, if there's if there's one takeaway that I got from the book, it was it's a job and treat it like a job. Uh, don't be wasteful. Don't be flabby. Be economical. Be economical in your planning. Be thorough. Be prepared. And is that is that a fair takeaway from the book? Oh sure. Sure, it, it it absolutely is. It's a unfortunately even at student film level, it's a very expensive kind of uh, thing to be doing. It's not like you're sitting doing watercolors, and and it doesn't matter how much it costs. Or doing an oil painting, all you've got is your own time and maybe a little bit of supplies, but. Beyond that, once you're into once you're into filmmaking, it's very expensive. So you you better learn how to be economical if you want to get something like your vision on film, um, because there's only a few of those great big tentpole movies where people get to try almost anything, and the rest of us have to figure out how to how to do with less. And I think also those movies that try to do anything, if you, again, you pointed out earlier, they're so expensive now that if you, if you kind of fall on your face by trying to do something daring, it, uh, it may be the last time that you get to try it. I mean, you, the part of the book also you talk about the uh, don't try to do these long, elaborate single takes. They might be flashy, but, you know, it's, it's not economical or necessarily effective storytelling, which, you know, I, I know I certainly know a lot of movies where you you'll watch this prolonged take and you wonder why they did it because it doesn't really add anything and it's kind of distracting at the same time. It's great fun to do them. I tell you that I love doing them. I think, oh, this is so exciting. But invariably, as as one uh, uh, editor said to me, I'm going to put my foot through your Rembrandt, <laughs> meaning he needs to <laughs> meaning he needs to cut into it because it. Because there's a close-up that's necessary, and yeah. there's another thing that's necessary that you just couldn't include in that in that uh, great single shot. Uh, but nobody's ever going to match that shot in the protector. No, with, that's true. That's true. With the guy running up five stories and and taking out fifty guys. Yeah. You go. Pretty, how in the world? That's it's pretty great. Kind of uh, yeah, it's pretty great stuff. Um, I want to I want to just flash back for a second before we wrap up to to Saturday Night Fever, which uh, you know has followed you around from day one because it is such an iconic film, and we often forget again that was the year of of Star Wars. But there are two things about Saturday Night Fever that I I think are fascinating to revisit. 
uh, number one, that a lot of people dismissed the film at the time. It's the disco era, it's cheesy, and it sort of fell out of pop culture favor with the Bee Gees music. All of that stuff just kind of became so kitschy at a certain point. And then, years later, people like me wound up being shown the film in film school uh, and being lectured, this is a great film, and uh, a lot of people missed the boat at the time. And then suddenly it's revisited, and its reputation is greater than it ever has been. Um, what, was, what, was that, what was that like for you, kind of being on that, that train, realizing that now this is considered not just a good film, but one of the great films, one of the great iconic representative films of its decade? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm always excited when people recognize that there's more there than uh than a brilliant Bee Gees song and, and and songs and 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 great dancing by Travolta which is the you know all of that is the is the whipped cream on top of this very substantial script by Norman Wexler who managed to you know create characters and situations and dialogues in in a way that looks so natural that that uh you didn't realize what you were getting and and I know that at the time uh a lot of people went to rip that movie off uh and do copies and say well if we just have a lot of great songs and cool dancing we've got another saturday night fever and one by one they went off the cliff yep. uh like lemmings and uh you know fell into the ocean because they didn't have norman wexler's story with the foundation that made all the other stuff work um and and i think that's that's part of the 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 secret there i i just ran the movie over at jj abrams company bad robot a few weeks ago they like to look at movies every every so often and and the comments afterwards were exactly what you just said the people saying wow I didn't realize this picture is really gritty and and gosh there's yeah. a lot of substance and character in here and you go yeah I know it's it's so easy to get distracted by by the wonderful music and the great dancing that that you forget about the underpinnings that make it all hang together it it really is a sensational script and it's uh i think people at the time sold Travolta's performance a little bit too short as well because it, uh, apart from the dancing and the clothes and the hair i mean he he really captured um this amazing kind of knot of of hope and despair and frustration and dreams all kind of fused together in one of those dead end neighborhoods that so many people found themselves caught in uh it really was a, it's a tremendous film and uh and thank you for making it um my my second question on Saturday Night Fever is uh, that that was, to my recollection, the first movie where there was a re-edit for a lower rating on re-release. There was the R-rated version initially, and then they did a PG version uh, sometime later. And uh, that seemed to me to almost prefigure... Uh, the PG-13 phenomenon now, where essentially we have uh, R-rated movies that have been just changed a little bit, a little language taken out, maybe a violent scene, uh, the edge taken off, just so we can make that PG-13 rating. And they always seem to be 
missing something. I think a lot of us watch them and realize they're doing this for commercial reasons, but they've also shortchanged what the story could be if it had just a little more edge to it. Um, would you talk just a little bit about the reasoning behind that at the time and how you felt? Because I'm, I'm assuming, and perhaps I'm wrong, that uh, it, was, it was taken out of your hands for that re-edit? Well, uh, as, as soon as Paramount could see that uh, they had this huge audience that were, fl- that were flocking to it, uh, in spite of the fact that uh, that the Hollywood community had instantly dismissed the film as vulgar and uh, racist, sexist, every kind of ist that you could imagine, uh, I got fired from a movie the day it, the day it was released uh, because because the word on it was so bad. Um, so that was the uh, you know their initial reaction, and they were hoping that somebody would show up on the first day. Then they realized that they're they're making uh, money hand over fist. They're for in the theater down by me in Studio City, it ran for 26 weeks, uh, and you go what? Nothing runs for 26 weeks nowadays. So um, uh, they said, well, gosh. We could make more money if we made it for the kids, uh, so we would have to cut it down to a PG version to do that because the kids can't get in, which was kind of muddled thinking because the kids all got in. They all got somebody to take them in. It wasn't like an X where you couldn't get in. You just had to have an adult, and how hard is that to get in? So anyway, uh, they said they were going to make the PG version and and I just said, okay, I can see you're going to do this. Uh, please, I know where all the footage is, and and I actually shot footage for television because I'm the only one that realized this film was going to go on television eventually, some point in its life, and so I shot coverage to make make sure it could go there without having to destroy the movie. So let me do it. If it has to be done, it might as well be me that does it. Hmm. So I went in to to cut it down. The funny part was that when we when we got it cut down to size, we had lost 12 minutes out of the movie because of the profanity. Yeah. But thank God we had the you know the coverage uh, the, for television that just softened some of the areas. Yeah. So the final product. Uh, when they put it out, it didn't go anywhere because by that point, almost a year later, everybody you know had seen the movie. They'd had it, and and it didn't do any business, it, but it did form the basis for our television cut. Well, I, uh, you know, the interesting thing is that you, you sort of um, set the uh, set a model for uh, John Carpenter with uh, um, Halloween, some just a couple of years later, which. He did. He kind of followed a similar path with that film too, and uh, a lot of people actually like the television cut better because it has footage that, uh, again, that was that was novel for television. Um, well, what's 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 next right now for you? Are, do we do you have any more books in you? Obviously, there was there was the, the the on the book on directors and actors a few years ago, five or six years ago, I guess it was, and this, which I think should be required reading in film schools. Any any other books? Any projects we should know about? What's uh, what's sort of on the horizon for you? Well, I'm uh, I just I just finished a couple of weeks ago the 
a show for the last season of Nikita on the CW network, which I have connection with because I did the uh, the version of Nikita for, with Bridget Fonda. Point of no called, return. Point of no return, and so I've I've done uh, several of these uh, Nikita episodes, and I'm going off to do Supernatural, uh, which is another CW show, and these are things that. You know, I I feel like I'm I'm going to the gym. I'm staying up on on current uh, you know techniques and 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 in tune with things. I I just don't like to sit around when um, when I could be out doing something useful. And hopefully, some of these uh, film projects that I've got in work, somebody will actually uh, green light them, and we can we can get uh, you know a good uh, movie going in the theaters. Well, I uh, you you've got a lot of fans and a lot of supporters on uh, among the listeners of our to our show. So, uh we wish you the best of luck. Would love for you to to get another one out there and especially in the summertime. I think your uh, your expertise and your wisdom is is much needed out there. It's becoming very quickly a very expensive wasteland. So, uh, John, I, I thank you so much for taking time this morning and uh, for talking to us. Best of luck with everything and with the book. And uh, hopefully, we'll talk to you again soon. Oh, thank you, Wade. It's great Thanks. to talk to you. You too. Thanks. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. And there it is. Our two-parter with John Badham done. Part three is coming up. Never. Put the microphone closer to your mouth for crying out loud. There oh, you go. Sorry. Part three <laughs> is coming up. Never. Never. No. So, Mark, any, do you have an outro for I us do. this week? I do. I have a new outro. We, we debuted it last week. You ready? Here we go. Right. Well, are you ready to say goodbye? I'm ready to say goodbye. All Let right, folks, we will... Take us uh, out. We will uh, check you out next week. Don't forget to hit the Facebook page. Don't forget to uh, send us uh, emails. Wait, next week we got to do emails. We have not done emails. I know. In a while. We'll, we'll do. We'll do uh, listener Why mail next week. Listener mail next week. And send us some Vox boxes. But gods at digigods.com. need Vox boxes. We have not had a Vox box in like two months. I know. We haven't had a while. So until then, good night, Simon Rumley. 